So this past January, for the first time since I lived at home with my parents, and after much nagging from Olivia, and also much to my own shame, I have to admit that I went to the doctor when I wasn't sick. The experts tell us that the three best things we can do to maintain our physical health are diet, exercise, and regular checkups. And historically, I've been good about exercise. I've even started to come around a little bit on diet. But until January, I had failed with regular checkups. I was one of those people who only went to the doctor if I felt really, really terrible. Now, diet, exercise, and checkups may be called preventative care. The idea is that if you do these three things consistently, there's a good chance that you'll cut off many major health issues before they ever get a foot in the door. They're proactive rather than reactive health measures. And while our physical health is very important, after all, our bodies are good gifts from God that we're called to steward for his glory, it's also incredibly important to maintain our church's health. So, toward that effort, this morning we start a new sermon series in the New Testament letter to Titus. The Apostle Paul writes to his long-term partner in ministry, giving him instructions about how to care for God's church on the island of Crete. But what exactly does Paul encourage Titus to do? What preventative measures does Paul prescribe to help these believers live out their Christian calling? And what medical interventions might be needed to address the illnesses that exist in these churches? In other words, what does a healthy church look like? And how might these lessons for the church in Crete way back then apply to a church like ours here and now? So open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you don't have one. Take that Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together, the privilege, but also the responsibility we have to come into your presence and worship you. Um, This is something that we get to do. It's something that many believers in other places would give anything to do with the level of comfort and freedom and lack of concern that, that we have. But this is also something that we're called to do. Uh, This is something that we must do. Uh, As your people, we have no choice but to worship you. Uh, We can't imagine a life of not worshiping you. Uh, So, Lord, I pray that we would appreciate this privilege, uh, but also obey your commands uh, and fulfill the responsibilities that you've given us to be your people. Because it's by fulfilling this responsibility, by the power of your spirit and with your word as our guide, Fulfilling this responsibility is good for us. Uh, In some ways, worshiping you on Sunday morning really can be like a trip to the doctor uh, in the sense that we need your word. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to sing your praises. And if we don't, we will be less than healthy. 
So, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to come into your presence, to give you glory, to give you praise, to be together as siblings in Christ, to be reminded of who you are and what you've done for us through the cross of Christ, all by your grace, which is sufficient for us. We love you. We worship you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Crete was a rough neck of the woods in more ways than one. The island is long and narrow, but still fairly large. It weighs in at just over 3,000 square miles and was known for its many small towns spread throughout the territory. That's a lot of ground for Titus to cover. On top of that, Crete was mostly mountainous terrain in a day and age before four-wheel drive. But the biggest challenge of doing ministry on Crete wasn't the island. It was the Cretans themselves. Cretans had a terrible reputation as an immoral and uncivilized people. An ancient historian named Polybius once wrote that Cretans were, quote, the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. In other words, they will do anything for money. Another saying goes, liars ever, men of Crete, nasty brutes that live to eat. Piracy was a common trade on the island of Crete. So if you're a fan of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, as I am, you can picture Crete as a real-life tortuga. Sometimes we still use the word Cretans as an insult. There's a reason for that. But if there's one man who's up for such a tough job, it's Titus. By this point, he had learned under Paul for decades. He was involved with Paul's ministry in Corinth, which was no cakewalk. Titus had proven himself to be, as one commentator puts it, Paul's troubleshooter. If you've got problems in a Meyer store, you send in Craig Hunter. If you've got problems in a church, you send in Titus. But let's read what Paul has to say about Titus. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. A lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, 
and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul, the servant of God with apostolic authority, left Titus in Crete to straighten the church out. Now, Paul had been to Crete once before as a Roman prisoner. You can read about that in Acts chapter 27. It's likely that Titus is written after the events of Acts 28, assuming that Paul was eventually released from his house arrest in Rome. But outside of that stay in chains, Paul may have never spent much time in Crete. And the church there may have started apart from his leadership. There were some Cretans present at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So maybe they saw the miracle of the Spirit coming down on the apostles. Maybe they heard the gospel preached. Maybe they believed the words about Jesus and then returned home and started a church in less than ideal circumstances. And because of the hard environment in which they live, their church may have been a little rough around the edges. Paul hears about it and ultimately dispatches Titus to help. But where should Titus start in addressing this church's health? Paul's first instruction is to appoint elders. Titus is to start with leadership. Paul gives similar instructions to Timothy in the city of Ephesus. First and second Timothy are often lumped together with Titus as Paul's pastoral letters because they share so much in common. And in both passages where Paul directly addresses church leadership. First Timothy three and Titus one. The two key traits he looks for in an elder is that he be above reproach and that he be able to teach. Now, what exactly does above reproach mean? Surely it can't mean that a man has to be perfect to serve as an elder. If that's the case, nobody is qualified. But it does mean that someone must have a life that overall is consistent with the truth of the gospel, consistent with the example of Jesus, if they're going to serve as an elder. They must be the kind of person who, if they were accused of wrongdoing, people would be shocked. The elder is to serve as a godly example in his personal character, his domestic life, and his public reputation. Now, as far as being able to teach, an elder must be capable of clearly teaching sound doctrine and recognizing unsound doctrine. We'll talk more in a moment about what good elders must do when unsound doctrine is present. In short, an elder must know his stuff. And if he doesn't know his stuff, he must make efforts to learn it. But before we move forward, notice what Paul doesn't seem concerned about 
when appointing elders. He doesn't focus on personal charisma, worldly success, length of tenure at the church, how much that elder gives, or an impressive skill set. Paul seems most concerned with godliness than with gifts. So again, Titus is in Crete to help that church get into shape. And his first priority, per Paul's instructions, is to appoint godly elders. Now, as churches strive to be healthy or vibrant or fruitful or whatever adjective we want to use, it might be tempting for us to focus on other things. If we want our church to be healthy, we need a big building. We need talented musicians. We need physically attractive greeters. We need a snazzy website, a catchy mission statement, and great marketing through social media, t-shirts, yard signs, and bumper stickers. Now, maybe some of those things have a place. But the following verses tell us why Paul prioritizes godly leadership ahead of everything else. Pick up in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. I don't know about you, but that's not the kind of party I tend to go to. (laughs) They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts. Lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God. But they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So why does a healthy church start with good leaders? Because there are bad voices out there who will lead God's people astray. Sound leadership can be both a form of preventative care a measure meant to prevent the church from ever getting sick in the first place, as well as the remedy for the illness of false teaching. Now, who are the false teachers in Crete? We saw in verse 10, they're the party of the circumcision. These people are also known as Judaizers. The same people the apostles rebuked back in Acts chapter 15. The people that Paul dealt with throughout his entire career, especially early on when he wrote Galatians. And the essence of these people's message was this. Jesus is great and all, but he's not quite enough on his own to really give you people, especially you Gentiles, full access into God's family. 
It's nice that you believe in Jesus. Very happy for you. But you also need to obey the law of Moses. Especially with regard to food. And especially with regard to circumcision. That's why they're called what they're called. In other words, you need to do just a little bit more. You need to contribute some of your own efforts. You need to become Jewish if you really want to be saved. Now, Paul takes issue with this teaching, but that's not the only problem. It's already bad enough that they are undermining the sufficiency of Jesus' identity, life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. That's bad enough. But they're adding insult to injury by doing it all with poor motives. Paul says that they're teaching for shameful gain. Sadly, they're living up to their Cretan reputation, which is why Paul includes that harsh saying in verse 12. But beyond their false teaching, beyond their false motives, these Judaizers also live false, ungodly lives. They may be decent talkers, but their actions expose who they really are. Their words and their lives simply don't match up. They're hypocrites. So what should Titus, and more specifically, what should the elders Titus appoints, do about this problem? That goes back to their ability to teach. It's why it's so important. They must recognize these false teachers and rebuke them sharply. Verse 13. An ancient preacher by the name of John Chrysostom said of these people, Give them a stroke that cuts deep, because he who flatters one that requires severity causes him to perish. In other words, anything less than a rigorous rebuke in situations like these won't do anyone any favors. It won't be good for Paul. It won't be good for Titus. It won't be good for the false teachers themselves, and it won't be good for the church that they're leading astray. They must rebuke them sharply. This is why elders must be able to teach. They must teaching when it raises its ugly head. They must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught and be able to teach it. So overall, this seems like a fairly basic treatment plan. For the good health of the church, Titus must appoint elders who are godly and able to teach. That way they can address false teaching that might make the church sick. Godly and capable leadership is both a preventative measure and a remedy. It can help a church avoid the infection of false teaching altogether And it can eradicate false teaching when it flares up. But how might Paul's instructions to this church and to Titus apply more specifically to us? I think the first and most obvious point 
It's that if we want our church to be healthy, we need godly leaders. The midterm elections are in just a few days, and we hear from both sides that nothing less than the future of our country hangs in the balance. I don't know about you, but I'm going to miss those text messages come Wednesday. Now, elections are certainly important, and I would encourage you to vote in a way that is consistent with your Christian faith. But you know what's also maybe even more important? It's voting for Prairie View's elders every June. I'm not kidding. More than anything, you should expect godliness from your elders. You should expect it from our staff. Sure, our gifts, our skills, those things matter. But our godliness matters more. And with the way our church is governed... With members like you voting to affirm elders once a year. You have the same job that Titus had in Crete. It's your job to appoint godly elders. And I pray that you would take that job seriously. Second, if we want our church to be healthy, we need capable leaders. I say this especially with Paul's other big priority for elders in mind, that they must be able to teach. Now, our elders will be the first to tell you that some of us are more gifted than others in the areas of studying theology and scripture. But all of us, fellow elders, must be able to teach. And if you don't feel confident in your ability to do that now, get to work. Educate yourself. Gifts like administration or pastoral care or organizational leadership, those are all important. They're all great for our elders to have. We complement each other. It's part of the beauty of a plurality of elders as laid out in the New Testament. But with all that said... Every single elder must be able to teach in some basic capacity. Because if we're not teaching our people, somebody else will. And that somebody might be a false teacher. Third, if we want our church to be healthy, we need courageous leaders. Now, the Judaizers that Paul and Titus had to deal with back then might not be around today in the exact same way. But make no mistake, other false teachers have stepped up to fill that void. It could be basic theological misunderstanding. It could be the prosperity gospel. It could revolve around issues of sexual ethics. Whatever form it takes, false teaching is still hanging around. And elders are still called to confront it. Is it easy? No. Is it fun? Also no. Is it awkward? Yes. Might we be called sticks in the mud, bigots, or Bible thumpers? Also yes. But we cannot take the easy way out. 
We cannot sidestep our responsibility. We cannot rationalize in action. And we cannot be soft when we need to be sharp. If we do that, we won't do anyone any favors when it comes to addressing false teaching. And finally, lest you think this sermon only matters to elders or leaders, if we want our church to be healthy, then you, congregant, must be receptive to all this stuff. If we have godly, capable, and courageous leaders who are actually doing the stuff that Paul calls us to do in this chapter, that may mean that one day you could be on the receiving end of a word of warning. And in that moment, we will need you to be open to being shepherded rather than cutting and running. We will need you to trust that our leaders are having that tough conversation with you, not to beat you down, but to build you up. And of course, we'll need you to support us and pray for us. Not blindly, not unquestioningly, but faithfully, patiently, graciously. Now you may hear this sermon and think, the way he always does, bossing people around, paying more attention to the institutional church than to Jesus Christ himself. But there's a phrase that Paul uses throughout Titus that you should pay attention to. It popped up twice today in verses 3 and 4. We'll see it again in the coming weeks. And that simple phrase that it's tempting to read over is God our Savior. Christ Jesus our Savior. It happens over and over again in this book. Now it's true that Paul gives commands and warnings and teachings. And Paul really is concerned about ethical and moral behavior throughout this book. And yeah, Paul does focus a lot of attention on matters of church structure and polity, which some of us think is a snooze fest. But Paul never forgot why he was doing this. He never forgot who it was for. God, our Savior. Christ Jesus, our Savior. If we want our church to be healthy, we need godly, capable, and courageous leaders who will address false teaching. We need a congregation that will be receptive to all of that. But even more, we need the constant reminder that God, Christ Jesus, is our Savior. We can appoint wonderful leaders who do everything right. But if we forget that Jesus Christ is our Savior, then we will be sick. And if you haven't trusted that Jesus Christ is your Savior, diet, exercise, and regular checkups will not help you. May our church be healthy. And may we as individuals be spiritually healthy. And that starts with remembering Christ Jesus as our Savior. Let's pray.
Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time that we have together this morning to worship you, to learn, to grow, to serve, and to be served. I pray that this time we've had together has been honoring to you and good for us. And Lord, I pray that we would take the words that we've read this morning to heart. They're incredibly practical, incredibly relevant, even some 2,000 years after they've been written. The same problems exist in churches like ours that existed in the churches in Crete, and the same solutions remain. We need godly, capable, courageous leaders, and Lord, I pray that you would provide us with those leaders. Thank you that we have so many of those leaders already, and I pray that you would help us continue to be the leaders you call us to be. I pray that you would raise up more leaders in the future as we're going to need more godly and capable and courageous leaders in the years ahead. I pray that you would plant seeds of healthy ambition and healthy aspiration to be godly leaders in your church among the people who are here right now. And Lord, I pray that we as a church would care about our health as much as anything else. It's easy to get distracted by numbers whether they're butts and seats or finances and budgets and accounts. And those things matter, but Lord, above all, help us strive to be spiritually healthy as a church and help us strive to be spiritually healthy as individuals. Thank you that you've given us all of the care that we need, all of the treatments that we need to be healthy. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your people your church, and you've given us your son. And so, Lord, restore us to good health, that we might be the servants and the children that you call us to be, that you saved us to be, that you made us to be. Again, we love you. We glorify you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.